Thank you, brother. Good morning, saints. Uh, Please turn to two passages, Revelation 12 and then Romans 7. Revelation 12 and then Romans 7. This is the word of the Lord. Please, brothers and sisters, give it your full attention. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, Romans chapter 7. Beginning in verse oh, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I do, or what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. But the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very thing that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of God. May God add a blessing to the reading of it. Now let us pray that God would bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength of your Spirit, who dwells within us, help us now to see the reality of the the inward battle and the great comfort that you give to those who experience such struggles. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in this time, that you would give us minds and hearts, ears and eyes, and feet, Lord, that are dedicated and belong to you. Be glorified in Christ, and we pray, I decrease that you may increase. In your name we pray. Amen. Saints, please be seated. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we consider a thought from last Lord's Day sermon from Revelation chapter 12. And we will not be expounding or expositing Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Uh, Rather, verse 17 is really a launching pad for us this morning. Last week, we discussed our present war with Satan. Because of our being in Christ, our being made one with Christ, our identifying with Christ, and our witnessing on behalf of Christ, Satan makes war with us, the church. Satan pursues the church to persecute her, to kill her and put her to death. Like Pharaoh pursued Israel to kill her, Satan pursues the church to persecute and kill her. He has lost the battle for her soul. So Satan intensifies his battle for her body. For Satan to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Saul, you may remember, was persecuting the church in order to bring them into jail for preaching Christ. And when Saul was 
met by Christ on the road to Damascus, our Lord did not say to him, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Or, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Or even, Saul, why are you persecuting those people? Rather, our Lord Jesus Christ says to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We are one with Christ, brothers and sisters. Therefore, when Satan persecutes us, the church, he in a sense persecutes the church, Christ, I should say. He is, as we have discussed, a defeated foe, though. He can persecute us all day long. It does not take away from the fact that he is defeated. He has been defeated by the person and work of Christ. John proclaims again and again in Revelation, the dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and the angels with him were thrown down. Satan is a defeated, thrown down foe. Because Satan knows his time is short, that the day when his judgment comes, the judgment of him and his minions, that it is near. When he will be judged in the lake of fire forever, in his anger, he has fixed his eye upon the church. And he persecutes her. He pursues her to seek her physical harm. We learned that this is displayed when believers are physically persecuted. When someone is hostile toward a confessing Christian. When someone mistreats a confessing Christian because they are a Christian. Satan is behind that evil act. Every single time. Satan persecutes the church by way of bodily harm. Uh, Even if the opposition is verbal, the verbal opposition is usually a threatening verbal opposition. Satan also persecutes the church by way of deception. And here is where we're going to sit for a few moments. Last week, I pray that we learn that we cannot finally be deceived. Because we are in Christ, we have been made new creations. The old is gone, the new has come, as we all know. Our minds have been renewed in Christ. Our minds are no longer hostile toward God. Praise be to God. Truth is no longer suppressed by us. Praise be to God. Truth is no longer manipulated by us. We are now able to discern truth from error. We have been given the mind of Christ. Therefore, we cannot ultimately be deceived. As we've said before, we can be mistaken from time to time. We can be misinformed from time to time. We can, at times, come to incorrect conclusions. But we will not finally be mistaken. Uh, We will not finally be misinformed or finally doctrinally incorrect. We may not know all of the inner workings of the Trinity, all of the inner workings of Christology or pneumatology. But we will not, because we are in Christ, we will not deny orthodox Catholicity. We will hold fast to the faith passed down from the apostles because we are in Christ. It is at this point, though, saints, that I think it's important for us to to wrestle with a few important present realities. We believe that we cannot finally be deceived. But sadly, it is possible for a believer to be deceived for a time. We believe, we confess that a believer does not remain in the temporary pleasures of sin. But sadly, it is possible for a believer to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11. We believe, we confess, we have been empowered to resist Satan, and in doing so, he will flee. But sadly, 
Satan's temptations are real. And so are the remnants of the flesh, which at times are inflamed and at times are unresisted. We confess from our confession, chapter 17, that we believers, <clears throat> believers, not unbelievers, believers, may be tempted by Satan, the world and the remnants of remaining sin in the flesh, that it is possible for us to give into temptation for a time and for a season. Because of remaining sin, chapter 17 of our confession, in our flesh, we may at times neglect the means of our preservation. We may neglect the means of our preservation, meaning this, we may for a time, as believers, turn away from God's holy word. As believers, we may for a time turn away from prayer. We may, as believers, not see the benefit of the Lord's Supper, not rejoice in the fellowship that we have with Christ at His table. As believers, we may fail to recall our baptism and our unity with Christ. As believers, we may neglect where those means are administered, the gathering of the saints. Meaning, there will, there are times when even as believers, we will not join the saints for worship. And even more, we confess that it is possible for a believer to fall into grievous sins. Grievous sins. And even continue in those grievous sins for a time. No, it does not bring honor to God. Absolutely not. No, it is not becoming of a Christian. Yes, it is a grieving of the Spirit. Yes, we are hardening our hearts toward God. And His will. When we do so, yes, our consciences are being seared. And we are not only hurting ourselves, brothers and sisters, but when one acts in the way that I have just described, they are also hurting others. Namely, the church. If you're anything like me, the question arises, how is this possible? Because, pastor, you have just emphasized with each, before each sin, believers, believers, believers could do these things. How is that possible? How is it possible with all of this talk of Christ's victory over Satan being our victory over Satan? How is this possible with all of this talk of Satan being thrown down? With Satan being a defeated foe? How could a believer, the emphasized believer, commit such acts of sin, resulting in spiritual harm of themselves and the harm of others, namely the church? How would a, how could a real believer do such a thing? How? If Christ has assumed our flesh to heal our flesh, can we confess that because of the flesh, we may fall, and not just fall, but fall into grievous sins? Saints, we may think of adultery, or we may think of, uh, of theft or some sort. Think of all grievous sins. Someone may say, well, isn't sin sin? Yes, but there are degrees of sin, aren't there? But did he not assume my, assume my mind to heal my mind? Yes. But don't you, child of God, still think thoughts that are not becoming of one who is in Christ? Has he not assumed my passions to heal my passions? Yes. But don't you, beloved of God, at times feel or long for, have a passion for things that, that are sinful 
and that a child of God should not long for. We believe that Christ has indeed assumed our flesh to heal our flesh, and yet, maybe more than we would like to confess, we often walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. We often walk in the flesh to gratify the desires of the flesh and not in the spirit. What? What are we to to conclude about such an apparent contradiction? Are we not healed? Or are we not set free from sin? Then to say it plainly, then what gives? At the end of last week's sermon, I made the point that Christ's victory has ensured our victory. That because of Christ, Satan has been thrown down, and all of his advances will ultimately or finally fail. All of these things remain eternally true. But what is also true, dear saints, you who find yourself in a privileged position, you who are a peculiar people, is that you can peculiarly say on the one hand, sin dwells within me. And on the other hand, victoriously proclaim, and Christ dwells within me. Satan is at war against the woman, the church. But it is also true that there is a war that is raging within you. And it is true of every confessor of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, with God's help, I would like to consider just two points concerning our present battle and our eternal comfort. Present battle. And you might even say present and eternal comfort. Number one, our present battle. This is from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. I'm going to be referencing them, so if you'd like to keep Romans 7 open, then that would be fine. We would be hard-pressed, wouldn't we, saints, to find a believer who is not familiar with these famous words of the Apostle Paul. In fact, I think I could rightly assume that when a person becomes converted, they all of a sudden become aware of Romans chapter 7. And it is maybe for some both comforting and confusing at the same time. For many, reading these words causes despair and discomfort. Paul seems to have found the x-rays of our soul. He seems to be expressing the thoughts of our mind and the emotions of our hearts. Upon reading Romans 7, the great perplexity of Paul, it seems to be leaping off of the page. His pain seems to bleed through the pages when he says, essentially, I never find doing good easy. There is always another principle at work gnawing at me pulling at me in the opposite direction. It's not easy to do good. Believe it or not, saints, these words, however painfully we might identify with them, and I think we most certainly do identify with them, they are words that are far from meaning to be discomforting. But on the contrary, they are meant to be words not only of comfort, but words of ultimate victory. What is to be made of this apparent raging battle that Paul is having? Not necessarily with Satan. With himself. I say not necessarily with Satan because Paul is not possessed by Satan. What we're reading in Romans 7 is not this man who is possessed by Satan who on the one side of his face Satan is pouring out of him and on the other side of his face God is pouring out of him. Not so. He is truly indwelt by the Spirit. And when one is indwelt by the Spirit he he empties out the, the, the house. He binds the strong man. You cannot be demon possessed saints of God. 
No, he's not demon-possessed. He may be tempted by Satan. In some way. But ultimately, Paul is lamenting over the temptation that is within his flesh. He is, no doubt, a human being. And therefore, he knows what the temptation that is being presented to him, what it's doing to him. It's sticking to him. Uh, He knows that when temptation comes from outside of him, it does have the potential, as Pastor Isaiah has talked about, to stick to him. But Paul is is not necessarily talking about temptation with without him or outside of him he's speaking about that thing that is raging up within him within his flesh now some might say but this is the lament not of Paul but of Saul meaning the conflict that Paul is talking about is a conflict that took place before Paul was converted not after conversion because surely converted people don't have this kind of conflict you might be surprised uh, to learn how many Reformed comment- commentators believe that, that this is not Paul, but Saul. This is the, the, uh, the one who was not converted, but why? They argue that this could not be the cry of a converted soul. That those who have been crucified with Christ surely could not lament in such a way. Those who have taken up their cross with Christ surely could not say such things as, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Where is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1. Uh, Surely someone who has been redeemed could uh, never have this kind of conflict. One who has said, how shall we who die to sin still live in it? This could not be Paul. This has to be Saul. How could one who says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, Romans 6, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin? How can a Christian who has said all of these marvelous things concerning our deadness to sin be the one who is expressing great struggle and torment over his soul because of sin? How could he say, if he was truly converted, I am not practicing what I want to do. But I'm in fact doing the very thing that I hate. How can someone who is truly converted lament, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from this body of death? Dear saints, Is this not the description of every true Christian? This can only be the experience of a true Christian. The Christian who says they experience no internal war. That they don't wrestle and fight against sin. That there is no internal conflict. They have no idea what it means to live then. Coram Deo. Before the face of God. Only one who has been given a new mind and only one who has been given a new heart will confess things like the law is spiritual. I agree with the law. Confessing that the law is good, as he said, he will also say, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. It's good. God is good. His law is good. I should be obeying it. The unbeliever doesn't say such things. Only believers say such things. Only converted people say such things. The inner man has been renewed and is brought to a place now to joyfully confessing the goodness of the law. Paul no longer suppresses the law that was written on his heart, but rather joyfully confesses its goodness. Paul sees the connection between the goodness of the law and the goodness of the law giver God himself. The law of God is the expressed will of God for men made in his image. Image bearers of God are meant to reflect the moral perfection of God who was holy. 
Paul is now given light. And he's able to see the line that that God draws from God himself to his law, to man made in his image. And Paul sees that he is now responsible for obeying that law. Because it has been given to him by the one who made him in his image. Paul sees that the reason for his existence is not only to recognize that the line from God in heaven to his law, to man here on earth. But Paul is given eyes to see that that line from heaven to earth must be drawn back from earth to heaven. That everything that is from God is made to return to God. Pastor Isaiah has talked about this, right? That exitus and retitus, that God has made us so that we might return to God. But that's where the conflict lies. It is because that which is returning to God, Paul knows is not acceptable before God. He knows that God has made him, that God has given us his law, and that Paul is responsible for it. But Paul is not giving back to God that which is acceptable to God. I don't do the thing I know I should be doing. Paul knows himself. He's... He's honest with himself, but but how does Paul know himself, and what is he honest with himself about? He's aware of his tendencies. He's aware that he is, like all sheep, he's prone to wander. He's aware of his shortcomings and sin, but how is he aware of them? Paul would have been familiar with the saying of the great philosopher Socrates, an unexamined life is not worth living. And when he would have known that Socrates fell short of understanding what true examination was. And that the believer, the true believer, always falls short when it comes to self-examination. The believer, the true believer, always falls short when it comes to self-examination. The unbeliever never falls short. When the unbeliever examines himself, they never fall short. Talk to an unbeliever. Do you think you're going to heaven? Yes. Why? I've been good enough. I've done enough. I am enough. When the unbeliever examines himself, they are always enough. When the unbeliever examines himself, he sees no wrong. And any wrong that he does see, any wrong that is detected is always rationalized. They have excuses for their flaws. Found in this self-examination. But the, the, the unbeliever can never acknowledge what Paul is acknowledging in this text when he's confessing. I am, I am no good. How does he know he's not any good? Well, Paul is not looking at himself and judging himself based upon his own standard of holiness. He's not looking at himself and saying, eh, you're doing all right. Rather, Paul begins this examination of himself by holding the image of God's holy word before his face. God, uh, Paul, examines himself in the mirror of God's law. And when examining himself in the mirror of God's law, which the true believer does, the results are always twofold. For the believer, the response is always, first, God is good. And secondly, woe is me, for I am undone. For the believer, there are two responses. God is good. God is holy. God is right. God is true. And the second response, but I am not. Is there anyone who has ever looked into the law of God and said, I'm doing good? Jesus rebuked the young man 
who believed that in light of God's law, that he was doing everything required of God's law. But Christ examined his heart and said, you still lack. You are still lacking. And the true believer always sees that they are still lacking. Satan is at war against you, yes. But you are at war against yourself as well. Was this not the response of the prophet Isaiah? When he received the vision from the Lord whose train of majesty filled his temple, the angels surrounded the throne and sang, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah could only fall on his face and say, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man, begins to confess, of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. piercing gaze of the Holy One immediately draws out of Isaiah a confession of his wretchedness. I am undone. My lips are unclean. I live with unclean people. What am I doing here in the presence of the Holy One? I don't deserve to be here. I am undone. Was Isaiah converted? converted Before this vision? Or had he already been converted? And was now receiving more clarity concerning whom he served and who rules heaven and earth. I take the latter to be true. Paul would have known that it is only when God examines the heart that the true results of the test are revealed. He would have known the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. You search me and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. And what were the results when Paul examined himself in the light of the mirror of God's holy law? I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. It's not his humanity. That's the problem. Let's make that clear. When God made man in his own image, out of the dust of the ground, God declared about man, about humanity, it is good. Man made upright before God, holy and blameless. Man did not come from God in the current fallen state that we now find ourselves in. No. It was the sin of the first man that caused all men to be polluted by sin. So Paul's humanity... It's not the problem. It's not his problem. It's not your problem. Your problem is not that you're human. The problem is that Paul's humanity and our humanity is corrupted by sin. It's polluted by sin. His human nature is now bent toward evil. Towards the, the opposite of what God commands, which is good. Paul explained that it is because of his corrupted humanity that he is bent toward evil. Verse 14, notice... But I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Verse 18, look at your Bibles. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then clarifies, because he's not referring to the spirit who lives within him, but the flesh that is in my flesh, he says. Verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin that dwells in me. Verse 23, the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is which is in my members, which is in my flesh, my eyes, my ears, my hands, my feet, and so on. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. This, this corrupted body. Let's clarify even further. Paul was not a Gnostic. Paul was not a, a Manichaean, which very simply means body, bad, spirit, good. Rather, Paul is making it clear that our bodies left to themselves are wicked. Our, bo- our bodies, absent of the Holy Spirit, are wicked. They are corrupted and they are corruptible. And they will suffer corruption. Polluted by sin. That's the law of the flesh. That's what he's talking about. There's something that has happened to our flesh 
because of man's first sin that is now, it is, it is encoded in every single human being. It's a law, therefore, that every single man is born, woman, child, baby, born in sin. And they, they live, they respond, they act in accordance to that law of sin. It's in their flesh. It's in their DNA, as it were. It reigns if they are not made anew by the Spirit of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But your bodies are not evil, saints. They're just corrupted by sin. But they're not evil. If the body were purely evil, then Christ assuming a body would be evil. If the body were truly evil, then Christ resurrecting bodily would be evil. If the body were evil, then the promise of a bodily resurrection would also likewise be evil. Your bodies are not evil. Paul, in the scriptures, is not saying it, that your bodies are evil. Nor is he saying, this body isn't really me. The real me is on the inside of me. No, it's you. Look in the mirror. There you are. That's you. But it's you undone. It's you being sanctified. It's you by the power of the Holy Spirit putting sin to death. It's you by the Holy Spirit turning away from sin and turning to God. It's the scales of the old man day by day as you take up your cross being removed from you by the power of God who dwells in you. Paul makes it clear that the body that is absent of a renewed soul will suffer corruption unto death. And that Paul was experiencing a conflict, but it's for our comfort. He says, in terms of his flesh, nothing good in me because it is corrupted with certain sinful longings that are being put to death, but within the body lives the Spirit who empowers me to not only pursue the good, but to know that it is good. May I say also, chapter 7 won't really be understood unless you read it in concert with chapter 8. If you just stopped reading at Romans 7.25, you might still be confused. you got to keep going. He's able to confess how the law is good when he sins. It's not because... He doesn't have the Spirit within. It's precisely because He has the Spirit within that He's able to say that He desires to do what is good. What is good but the law? But He's not practicing it in the manner in which He knows it should be practiced. Brothers and sisters, how should this be obeyed? Slightly or completely? Paul, when examining himself, knows that what God requires is not what he's giving. I'm drawing that line back again. God to man. Man giving back to God. He understands that what he is giving back to God, again, is not what God has required. He's not absolutely obeying. Someone might say, well, God knows my heart. Please stop that. Please do not say that. It is precisely because God does know your heart that Christ has come. God does not judge us on a curve either. We don't look. Let's take myself, for example. I was going to point to the person I usually point to, but I think he's been beaten up enough. When God judges, he doesn't look at, at me and say, well... Based upon him, you did pretty good. The law is to be completely obeyed. Uh, one wise man said, do or do not, there is no try. Paul knows that he has failed to obey the law. Paul knows of all of his sinful tendencies. 
But the inner man knows that he joyfully aspires to obey the law, but doesn't do it in the manner in which God deserves and requires. It is the outer that wars against the inner of the one man. And it's meant to be comforting for us. As we move from this point, here is why it is comforting as we get into the our comfort. Because it is evidence of your regeneration. Are you experiencing a conflict now of pursuing good that God calls you to and this resisting from the flesh that wants to pursue sinful passions? If so, then praise God. You are at least in some ways expressing evidence that you have been filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 The flesh sets its desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things, may not do the things that you please. If there is no internal war, no conflict within, to aspire to the goodness written on the heart revealed in God's holy word, that it may be evidence that you are not filled with the Spirit. But if you can see and hear and know and believe God's word and know that this should be obeyed, then that is evidence that you have been filled with His Spirit, even though you are presently wrestling against sin. those who say, I I have conflict in my mind. I have thoughts that shouldn't be there. I know they shouldn't be there. I know they don't please God. And sometimes they do get the best of me. Dear child of God, there is comfort for you. You aspire to do good. The good that is revealed here, there there is an inner man who has been made new who is working in you to aspire to please God and not to do the common good. You've heard of common good? Common good is man doing what is right in the eyes of man. It's expressed in statements like, I don't judge anyone's lifestyle because I believe that everyone is good to each his own. That's a humanistic, false expression of good. When someone says, I honor everyone's religious beliefs because I can see good in all religions, that's a false, humanistic idea of common good. Those so-called common goods are not the good revealed in God's law, which is the only and highest good. In fact, those so-called common goods are not good at all. In the eyes of God, who is only good. Saying that every religion is good denies the exclusivity of Christ being the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So Paul, as he is examined by the law of God, he abides by what James says. He looks into the holy law of God and he doesn't forget his face. He doesn't turn away and forget immediately what he's seen. But it it begins to bear on his conscience. It begins to be something that he says, I know that I am not fulfilling that which God has called me to fulfill. He is graced to peer into the holiness expressed in God's law. And the reflection that comes back to him, it's unsettling to him. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Saints, does this not describe your and my daily struggle against the flesh? We are bombarded by the attacks of the world and the attacks of Satan and his agents. But don't we often find ourselves lamenting apart from those things 
the very things that Paul is echoing here in Romans 7. For those who live and desire to live before the face of God, for those who desire to worship Him in spirit and in truth, your minds are right now being renewed. As we meet with God, and the blessed Trinity is further revealed to us, as the fog is being removed here a little and there a little, causing us to go from faith to faith until faith is turned to sight and glory. Do you not experience at times a struggle? Each time do we not agree with Isaiah and Paul. Woe is me. Wretched man that I am. Abraham knew that struggle. Sarah, she knew the struggle. Jacob knew that struggle. Rachel knew that struggle. Samson knew that struggle. David and Bathsheba both knew that struggle. John the Baptist knew that struggle. And all who desire to live godly lives will also know that struggle. Are we not presently being refined by fire? Yes, we are. Are we not presently experiencing tribulation in the world and within our members? Yes, we are. Paul knows that nothing good lives in his flesh apart from the Spirit. The unbeliever is not, the unbeliever is deceived by self-confidence. The immature is deceived by self-reliance. But only the true believer has a true and right perspective of himself. They are poor in spirit. The regenerated man knows himself well. He can evaluate himself and see that, that we are but dust because he evaluates himself upon the word of God. Do you know any believer who has a high view of himself? Any believer who has a high view of themselves? Do you know any believer who thinks highly of themselves? They know what God says of them. They don't deny that. But they know that they are far from who they should be. Are we not renewed? Yes. And this war is evidence of your renewal. If there was no war, then there would be no renewal. He's at war. God in his wisdom has saw it fit for this. That when we are renewed, we are not immediately perfected. But we experience the refining of our faith. Wouldn't that be nice? If as soon as we were regenerated, we were immediately perfected. That we were immediately without sin. That there was no longer a battle or a war against sin. Would that, wouldn't that be nice? But God in His infinite wisdom has saw fit to not immediately perfect, but to allow us to go through the sufferings of Christ on the road to perfection, that we would experience the, the trail of tears, as it were, on the way to the cross as we carry our cross with Christ. And that must be done daily. I texted Pastor Isaiah, am I, am I saying this correctly? Is that, is that right language? And the way he always does, he made a statement to me. I initially earlier said that, that because of our, our sin in Adam, we are bent towards sin. And Pastor Isaiah in the text said it. And when we are regenerated, when we are made anew, we are bent toward God. We are in a sense being uh, rebent. We are being untwisted. And at times it, it's painful, isn't it? But God is bending us back toward Him, Pastor Isaiah said. Restoring us to our proper selves, he said. So that we might be elevated unto a divine mode of being. God is making you like Himself. And removing the stain of sin. Has removed the stain of sin. Yes, He has. But removing the remnants of sin now in our flesh. And he has a promise to us a new body that will be rem that will be removed from sin. And oh, what a blessed day that will be. 
So then where is our comfort in closing? As we war in this flesh, we know that we are offering to God imperfect obedience. That we are not offering to God what we should. So where in the world is our comfort if we know that we, what we offer to Him is not truly acceptable to Him? Well, in some sense it is. But it's only acceptable in one way. Secondly and finally, our comfort, present comfort in this war, which is our eternal comfort. Romans 7.25 Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. After all of that, and then may I ask you to do some homework and then go home and read Romans 8. And then go home and read Romans 8. And then read the rest of the Bible. Read Romans 8. What comfort do we have that we shall overcome? And that's what we want to know. Will I win? In this battle of spirit and flesh, will I win? First, we are comforted to know, as Pastor Isaiah taught last week, that God loves you. It, it cannot be stated enough. God loves you. The comfort that you have is this. The Father loves you. John 16, 26, the Father Himself loves you because you have believed in Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father Himself loves you. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on you, on us, that we should be called children of God. And that, John says, is what we are. The Father loves you and you are His child. The Father loves you. You are His child. That is what you are. What comfort do we have as we wage war against the flesh? We have the, an assurance that we are loved by the Father. That the love of the Father is an everlasting love. As was said last week, it is a, a love that never began to begin. It is one that has always been. The Father has always loved you. And why does that matter? Because the Father has given to His Son a people to save John 10, 29, Christ assures you that because of the love of the Father, no one will snatch you out of His hand. And because He is one with the Father, no one will likewise snatch you out of His hand either. So you have not only the love from the Father, who so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that we would not perish, but have eternal life. But the Father shows His love to you by giving you His Son. His only begotten Son, his eternally generated Son. He gives to you His Son. He is the eternal Word made flesh. He is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for you, His sheep. Christ said, Greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Last week we learned of the, the width. Wasn't that beautiful? Of the length, of the depth, and of the height of the love of Christ. How wide it was. How is, how deep it is. How high it is. It is a love that surpasses even when it is explained. It even surpasses how good it is. And we were yet given another glimpse into the matchless love of Christ. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. What comfort do I have as I'm wrestling against the flesh? You have this. The Father loves you. He could say of you rightly, You are my son. You are my daughter. And I love you. Does that not compel you to fight? Because He loves you. Because He's given Himself for you. Is that not enough for you to say, I will fight on? I will wage war. I will continue to fight. One man who everybody loves said, I say to the Christian, don't wage war against Satan. Don't even engage him. That's foolish. I know everybody loves him. I'm not going to say his name because then everybody's going to say, oh, you think he's a false teacher? He's not. But that's just a foolish thing to say. Because it's not real. It's not real. You live in the flesh. Even... I think of St. Anthony, 
the monk who was, in, in one sense, the, the, um, the father of all the monks who isolated himself in the desert, away from all of humanity, spent all of his, his morning and night praying and eating just enough to survive, and yet he also will tell of his wrestlings against the flesh. You are loved by the Father, so fight on. You are loved by the Spirit, so by the Son, so fight on. And yes, you are loved by the Spirit because the three are one. We have been given the person of the Holy Spirit as both the gift of love and the seal of God's love. Because we have been indwelt by the Spirit, we are sealed and therefore protected by from the wiles of Satan. And He is our gift of love. He helps you. He teaches you. And even I pray now, He is comforting you. So fight on. What comfort do you have as you wrestle against the flesh? You have the knowledge that you are loved by the Holy Trinity. And how can you be sure of this? Because God has revealed it in His Word. And His Word is inerrant. His Word is infallible. His Word is true. You are the very words of God here. Here. The mysteries of heaven have been revealed to you. You know that you are in conflict. And now you know why you are in conflict. And you also know that you are victorious because of Christ in this conflict. It's been made, to you, known, it's been made known to you in His Word. The word of God remains forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But his word will remain forever. Seasons change. Friends change. But God is immutably immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You can depend on his word. What is more you can depend upon? You can be comforted by the nature of the gospel. How can we be comforted in spite of the fact that we know that we are not offering to God that which is acceptable? That's Paul's struggle, isn't it? And what's the solution? I praise God through Jesus Christ. We are resting upon the one who is perfect, who has perfectly offered himself in our place. You and I can't offer perfection to God. And thanks be to God, we don't have to. Not that you shouldn't pursue holiness. Be holy as he is holy. But one who is altogether holy, full of grace and truth, has come and lived in your place, died in your place, and risen in your place. The nature of the gospel is that we can rest upon the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who assumed our flesh again, full of grace and truth. He was in our flesh, was tempted in all matters of the flesh, but yet never committed any sin in the flesh. He's turned away from all of Satan's failed advances. He's seen through Satan's deceptions. He has walked the trail of suffering in our flesh and overcome in our flesh. Christ, who is of infinite value, has lived a perfect life of obedience and died a substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death on our behalf. Christ has died. More than that, Christ has been raised from the dead. His body now is glorified. And isn't it fascinating... That he is determined to maintain his scars. He's flesh. You will see the resurrected body of Christ. And when you see his glorified body, you will also see scars in his hands and scars on his feet and a wound on his side. Five bleeding wounds by which we have been healed. They are still present in the glorified body of Christ. They are battle scars, are they not? They are trophies for what? To remind us that Satan has been defeated. That Christ is victorious. That Christ has shed His blood on our behalf. And you can look to those scars and you can say, because Christ was victorious in my flesh, so too can I be. Because He is making me. He is working in me. He's come to actually save sinners, not potentially save us, not temporarily save us. You will not be lost. Christ has saved you to the uttermost, to the completion therein. Christ, once he begins, does not finish until it is complete. Christ will save you and I to the uttermost, has saved, is saving, will save you and I to the uttermost. You can rest assured that Christ did not rescue you only to leave you stranded, susceptible to be lost. No. 
Christ has saved you to the other uttermost. Be, take comfort in that. And God is preserving you, is he not? He's promised that he will preserve your faith because we are being, and because we persevere, we, we persevere because we are being preserved. Why do you still fight on? Because you are being preserved by God. Why do you persevere in the faith? Because God has preserved you and will keep you until the day of judgment. Those who by God's power are brought to this life will be kept by that power until they are joined with God in heaven. Take comfort in that. The final inheritance of glory is being kept by God for His people. And in the meantime, He is producing in us a quality and character of faith that will go on believing and that will go on trusting in Christ until that faith is turned to sight. And when trust gives way to consummation, This does not mean that we are secure, therefore we can live any way that we want to. That at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how I live, I'm saved anyways. No. Grace reigns in us that we might turn to righteousness and never depart from it. When you become saved, you're not on autopilot, you're not letting go and letting God. No. You've been called to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. We've been assured that we will not finally go astray. But in spite of our sinful tendencies, we will be kept until the very end. And whatever weeds sprout up that attempt to choke our faith, God will give us grace to turn away. What comfort do you have? You have been empowered to turn away. When the flesh rises up, you have been empowered to say no to the flesh. Where before you could not do so. You only obeyed the simple passions of your flesh. Now, now in Christ, you can turn away from the passions and desires of your flesh. You can turn away from them. When someone is tempted, they, might, they should not say, God has tempted me. For God cannot be tempted with evil. But in every moment of temptation, God provides a door and escape for you who are his children. When conflict within arises, God, as he did with Joseph, provides not only a power to resist, but a door to escape. You have been given power to resist and a door to escape. The victory of Christ ensures this. You have been empowered now to resist the devil and God's promise to you is this. When you resist him, he will flee. Your faith shall not be lost. When you are weak and you can be weak, God's promise to you is this, but that your faith will not be lost. We confess that we fall into temporary sin. But here's what our confession of chapter 17 also says. But we also confess that God will grant us repentance and renew our faith in Christ. All of those grievous things, all of those difficult things, turning away from the graces, all of that. But for the believer, we confess God will grant us repentance and he will always renew our faith in Christ. Repentance is a work of grace, is it not? It's a gift of grace. When you repent, God is giving you the gift to repent. It's not automatic. When you turn from sin, that's the grace of God working in you. When you recognize sin for what it is and say, this is not please God. God, I repent of my sin. That is a work of grace within. It's been graciously given to God, by God. You've also been given and equipped with weapons of warfare. Pray. Pray. Be a people who not just know Him, but know Him intimately in prayer. Be committed to gathering with the saints. And finally, take comfort in this final thing. John 17. 
And I'm sure that there are plenty of other comforts that, that as we sit together, we could um, encourage each other by. But in closing, be comforted by this. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. But for those also who believe in me through their word. That they may be one. Even as you father are in me and I in you. That they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. What is your final comfort of I'm sure many other comforts? Christ is praying for you. And there is no prayer of Christ that is offered to the Father that is ever denied. As has been said before, His very presence at the right hand of God is His intercession for us, His people. The fact that He has been raised, the fact that He is glorified in heaven is our intercession that He will be, that we will be kept until the day when faith is turned to sight. Satan has been thrown down. Christ is victorious. Even when we wrestle against the flesh. Because Christ is risen. And overcome the flesh. You can take comfort. That you too will be victorious in this war. So fight on. Let's pray.